Welcome to Sustainable Dao Non-Fungible Talk, a show about everything Dao and Web3, and a team of Sustainable Dao that includes me, your host, Clarice Chow. Our expert guest today is Jason Lee. Jason is a serial entrepreneur, a tech founder, and an expert in blockchain security. He is the co-founder of MPC Vault, a non-custodial wallet where Web3 teams securely store manage and transact digital assets. Prior to that, Jason was also the co-founder of MP Loop Chat and Inky Labs. Hi, Jason. It's a pleasure to have you here. Would you like to share with our audience about your background and how you get into blockchain industry? Hi, everyone. My name is Jason. I've been in the blockchain industry for almost eight years. How I started was very interesting. I was in high school back in Singapore. And that was like 2013 or 2014. I was looking into different research opportunities. Most of it are cutting mice brains into slices and count the number of cells. And then you put dye on it and then you do some biological experiments, etc. I was more interested in the financial markets and also mathematics, computer science as well. So I was just like emailing around and I found this professor in Singapore and he called me and said, Hey, Jason, do you play games? And I said, yeah, sure. I do play games and you're good at math, right? And I said, pretty good. And so he said, come over, I have something for you. So that's when I first got in touch with Bitcoin and looked into the Bitcoin code and started digging at the different aspects on chain analysis and different cryptocurrency price analysis and published my paper, first paper on cryptocurrency back in 2014. And it was later included in a financial mathematics book as well. So that's my foray into the whole cryptocurrency world. And of course, later on, I did a lot of talks at different banks and also seminars on the topic of cryptocurrency, mainly from the science of it and also the financial aspects of it. So that's how I got into crypto. So Jason, I've heard you, you have been a young, successful serial entrepreneur with several exits. Can you share with us your entrepreneurship journey and your previous projects? After getting into crypto, at that point of time, I was in high school. So I was like thinking, hey, what do you want to do? Because this is a really amazing opportunity, right? But I was doing school, so there are limited things that I can do. So I first wanted to start a estate project on chain where you where we buy a house in Japan, Hokkaido. It's a very beautiful house right next to the skiing resort and we can rent it out and the rental income would be passed back to the token holders back at the ICO days. But ultimately I didn't want to do it because the SEC rules were very unclear about what's if it's a security and if it's a security, how it should be treated, all these Howard tests and et cetera. Back then was everything that people were talking about. Of course, there's another class of ICOs going on back then, which were not backed by any meaningful assets. But they were just, you can, you can basically trade the tokens in a speculative way and they do very well. But I wasn't really interested in those tokens that don't really have utility values. So I'm like a person who believes in long-term value and value creation for people. And then a new opportunity comes. Friend's dad approached me and said, hey, do you want to build a cryptocurrency exchange and be a technical co-founder? So I said yes to that. And that's how I started my first company. And I was the only person there to be responsible for building up the company, starting to hire people. It was my first time hiring people too, doing interviews with people who already worked for a few years. And I was doing school, right? So that was a very weird experience, but it was very interesting. So I built my first cryptocurrency exchange and then we sold it for roughly about a million back in 2017 after the regulatory crackdown on crypto and cryptocurrency trading. We don't want to run the risk of 
having the government come after us or things of that sort. So that's what I did. And then I was, that was my second year at UC Berkeley. I was still doing talks about crypto stuff because like people were very interested in crypto. Crypto was growing as well. And I met David. He's a great person. So we decided to start something together. And then ultimately we went into the payment space. That was more in Web2, like social plus payments. So right now it's like more than 300,000 users is still up and running. We're just maintaining it, not really pushing it anymore. Realizing how hard it is to actually push the exponential growth trajectory in super competitive chatting space in Web2. So that's why I've decided to come back to Web3, put that project on hold and start something I think is more meaningful. And there's a pressing problem to be solved. That's really the Web3 industry is facing. So that's a bit of a background about my entrepreneurial journey from high school to university here in the States. Thanks, Jason. Would you like to share with us more about your latest startup and PC vault? What's the reason it's the best way to manage Web3 assets for T? MPC Vault is really a team custody tool. If you think about managing cryptocurrency assets in a team setting, let's say Clarice and you and I start a cryptocurrency fund or we start a Web3 company, what's going to happen is that we're going to manage, say, a Bitcoin or 10 Ethereum or 100,000 USDC together, right? We use it to pay for salary. We use it to with on-chain stuff. But management of cryptocurrency is very difficult. If you think about or MetaMask, that's, you, know, you, have, you need to have a private key and it's impossible for us to share the same private key because it will only lead to disastrous outcomes. If we share the private key between you and me, if money is stolen, you can point fingers at me and I can point fingers at you. So that's the single biggest problem of team management with MetaMask and Ledger. And things have happened before. We're hacked or stolen. I can claim that it's stolen by somebody else, but actually I stole it. And there is no way to prove it because there is no way to prove exactly who signed it. Having the key is equivalent to having unfettered access to all your assets. And there's no trace of exactly who did what on chain once you have access to the private key. So that's a really serious issue. But of course, there are other solutions. So Ledger and MetaMask and all these cryptocurrency mobile wallets you're familiar with, trust, trust wallets, BitKeep wallets, or several other wallets, they're targeted for consumers, which are great if you use it just for yourself. But in a team setting, there are very limited choices. So the biggest one will be Fireblocks, but it's hard to use after talking to their customers and they're complaining, slow response times, and also the UI UX is just really hard to understand and to operate. Understanding the product and being able to operate it well is also an aspect of security. So that's something that we're trying to make better of and pushing it to the mass market. So our clients include SMBs. SMBs means small and medium businesses. Most of the high profile Web3 projects are our clients including VC funds, like especially those newly formed VC, they use us to send money to the projects they want to invest. So that's how people are using us. So the pain point we're really solving here is to manage Web3 asset security in a team setting. And one thing to be noted is that we, MPC Vault, is non-custodial. So if CIAs see all the data, your assets and your team assets will be fine because we don't have all the keys to unlock your asset. If you want to make a transaction, we're co-signing it. So we only have the ability to co-sign, which means we can't control your assets. At the end of the day, your assets remain yours. And I think that's one of the most important principles in crypto. And we definitely will adhere to it now and also in the future. So what do you think are the major security risks of digital assets? How do MPC Vault help to address those risk factors? Just now I mentioned the difficulty of managing team assets. If you were just to pass around private keys, at the end of the day, no one would take responsibility for the bad things that happen. It has happened before to exchanges, 
to bridges, the total amount of assets hacked under this particular case is almost a billion dollars. So that's the magnitude of the impact over here. On the consumer side, if we just talk about private keys, you also have a problem. If there's a private key, you are going to keep it safe. Other people can't see it because if I see it, your assets are gone. I can choose to steal it now. I can choose to steal it 10 days later. And there is no way you're going to correlate the hack with me because you don't even know I saw it. Recently, someone who was an early adopter and promoter of Ethereum also got hacked. And he had all these experience operating a wallet in a secure way. After all, he holds so much assets. But still, keeping secure your mnemonics, the 12-word private keys are still a challenging task, even for experienced and sophisticated individuals, let alone for people you hire from the market. There is a conflict between privacy and redundancy, meaning that you want to keep it in a redundant way with as many copies as you can. So if today you keep it on your phone, MetaMask, which is great, you also want to put it under your bed because what if you broke your phone and there's no backup or there's a fire that happened or other people like the cleaning lady grab the piece of paper and throw it away without realizing how much value it carries. So those things could all happen that have happened before. So you want to be able to balance redundancy with privacy. And that's a really hard question because these two are conflicting objectives. And PC Vault also solves that by favoring redundancy, which means that you have as many copies as you like, but you don't have to keep it extremely private because even if my mnemonics are seen by Claris today, it's fine. You won't be able to steal the assets. And if you attempt to even log into the account, I will get notified. Just now I touched a few aspects on key management. So at the key layer, private key management is probably the biggest risk. If you go one level above, you would have smart contract interaction risk. This is where DNS hijacking is coming into play and authorized token approvals is coming into play. We also deal with those attacks for our users by pinning the contract addresses and actively scanning and screening each contract interaction. If there's a risk factor, it would alert them about such risks and they can use their discretion to choose whether to go ahead with the transaction or not. But at the, at the minimum, they know what's happening and they are made aware of the risks if they were to interact with the contract. That was a brief overview of some of the major Web3 risks. There are way more than these. For example, smart contract risks, which MPC Vault as a wallet does not cover. It's not our scope. It's more like the auditing firms and the projects themselves. But we do whatever necessary and to the best of our abilities to bring down risks that's associated with private keys and also smart contract interaction. You have mentioned that MPC Vault can be used by wallet provider, venture capital, hedge funds, banks, exchanges, and teams. Can you share with us some user cases? Use cases include operational tasks. You have 10 people on your team. You are probably going to pay salaries. How do you do that and keep its accounting clean? and audit-wise understandable and detailed. With us, every transaction is tagged to a particular name and whatever you're doing, we allow you to put a transaction memo. So everyone's what's happening. That's how people are using MPC Vault. For example, if you're a marketing team, you want to ask about, let's say, 10,000 marketing budget from the C-suite people, and you're going to manage the vault yourself because you don't want to have every transaction approved by the C-suite when it's a $5 payment made to an external vendor for a sticker that they made. They would just do a multi-sig on our platform, maybe for a month that's above $10. So that's how a company would use this to set up tier transaction policies. The company would also have reserve assets and treasuries. This is where they would use us and have more strict multi-sig policy set up 
to make sure that every movement of assets would have to be approved by multiple people. We allow users to connect to any decentralized applications via Wallet Connect. Companies use us to stake their assets on decentralized finance protocols and gain yield on their reserve holdings. That's how on the treasury management side they would use it. And as for BC, we provide fiat on-ramp, like fiat bridges between USD and USDC. So VCs, after they raise their fund, they will approach us to say, hey, can you help us convert the money into USDC? And we say, yeah, sure. And just give us the money via wire. And then your USDC will be deposited almost immediately. For venture investing, they're going to use us for bookkeeping. And every transaction would go through us because you OTC onto their own wallet first. And then you and then they send a transaction out to the whatever wallet that's given by the project. VCs also use us for reporting so their LPs know exactly what's being invested and how much it's being used. Our vault has viewer permission, so LPs can come in as viewers so they see exactly what is happening and there's transparency to the financials of the firm. Web3 DeFi funds, they would use us to stake their assets onto DeFi. So let's say they engage in LP pools of Uniswap, they do DeFi trading and DeFi arbitrage and they would use us for that because of our advanced proactive security features. And then Web3 companies, projects, they would also use us to take control of the admin address of upgradable proxy contracts. And those are super important because they would be able to upgrade the code by adding new features and et cetera. So the implementation logic would change. And whoever holds the key to the upgradable proxy can change the implementation. So it is very important that all the upgradable proxies are kept secure. So that key has to be multi-sig. There has to be a transaction policy to it. So that's also what people are using us for. You also mentioned previously that DeFi security affects multiple layers, including third-party layer, DeFi protocol, application layer, smart contract layer, blockchain layer, and network layer. What do you think is the most vulnerable sector with existing products and how this can further be addressed? I think for DeFi securities, there are two major risks that have surfaced over the past few years. And first is from the smart contract side. Smart contracts are hard to audit. Even though it's audited by a professional auditing firm, still bugs will be identified after the audit and after it was deployed. Just think of Apple, right? Apple is a great company and has so many great and talented engineers. But at the end of the day, there are still zero-day vulnerabilities, which means that it's a major vulnerability that nobody has ever known before, even after lots of code review by peer engineers. And it's very hard to eliminate bugs if you just have one shot. And that's the case when you have um, a DeFi protocol. And when bugs is identified, all money, there is no recourse to it. All money will be withdrawn immediately by the hacker and there is no recourse to funds. So that's why smart contracts is a single biggest risk factor. Like you just have to write it well. And write it so well in the sense that there's no bugs and now and in the future. And another thing, interaction with smart contracts. So there were cases where your browser is hijacked. You're actually interacting with a fake contract. You're instead of sending your money to Uniswap, you're actually sending money to say an EOA account that's controlled by the hacker, right? So those things could happen as well because when the transaction is formed, it's formed by the website JavaScript. There could be vulnerabilities over there. And then it's relayed through Wallet Connect. And then there could also be vulnerabilities with Wallet Connect. And it's then handled by the wallet. And there could be vulnerabilities with the wallet. So you don't really know what you're signing ultimately. Those are the risk factors if you just delve deep into the different aspects of the whole chain interaction from how is it created to ultimately how they sign. 
So this year, the Solana attack targets thousands of crypto wallets, costing users more than $5 million. Can you share with us what are the causes behind the attack and how to prevent similar incidents in the future? Yeah, so this is a very interesting case. I'm very glad you asked the question. Crypto wallets such as Slope and Phantom, they're called self-custodial or non-custodial wallet. Ideally, they're just the same as MetaMask because your keys always with you. It never leaves your device. And that's what the promise is. The reason why they got hacked was because there's a thing called debug flag or debug mode when you are developing an application, right? Because you're going to print some stuff. You're trying to figure out exactly what went wrong and you're trying to fix the logic. So you need to print a few things for you to understand exactly where we are in the execution and what state is it. You want to be able to see the answer when it's executing by printing it out. So it so happens that the, the mnemonics are also printed out during the dev mode, development mode, which is fine, right? Because you need to validate exactly if the mnemonics are right, understandable, right? So it's all controlled by a flag. If you set debug to true, it means that it's going to print everything out. If you set debug to false, it's not going to print everything out. Simple, right? So when the developer push the build to the app store, he mistakenly set the debug flag to true, which means that you're still in debug mode. And then your application starts print stuff. Every time you log in, like your mnemonics are printed. And it also so happens, all these are uploaded to the Sentry logs. And Sentry logs, even though it's a self-hosted version, it can be seen by many people. You have data analytics, people who can see it. You have different dev, people who can see it. It just takes one person to copy down some of the mnemonics and then he can run it after leaving the company for three months or he can be a current employee. There's no way for you to even identify who did it. One just have to transfer the assets out by typing a few commands on the Solana blockchain. And that's what happened. And let's say if such wallets were made open source, would that make things more secure? It's true to some extent. In this particular case, the debug flag is an application parameter. So even if it's running the same set of code as published in the open database, you still run the risk because the production flag are not set in the code. They are set when you deploy the app and there's no way to check that. Okay, so that's one risk factor. And the second thing is, even if let's say MetaMask publishes all the code to GitHub, right? And you've added all the code, it's great. How do you make sure the code on GitHub is exactly the same code that you're running on your phone, right? So I could inject a backdoor into the MetaMask and I can still publish my source code without having those backdoor included. As an average consumer, there's no way for you to verify exactly what went wrong. If you look at the whole setup, there's a single point of vulnerability. And that's whoever touched the code base, they can do whatever they want, right? Maybe it's two people, but it's still within the same organization, or it's still a small team of people who are in charge of everything. And the CSCD pipeline could get hijacked. You commit to GitHub and you commit to whatever code repository, they're peer reviewed, they're great. But your CSCD pipeline, CSCD stands for continuous integration, continuous deployment, basically the build, you're building the app, right? Like the building part, there are vulnerabilities there and hackers just injected malicious code into your app and they would automatically upload everything. Your code is fine, but your CSCD pipelines are screwed and that's why everything is screwed as well. So overall, there's always a single point of vulnerability, either with CSCD pipeline, the people or the team themselves and et cetera, or just careless practices by the user. And so this is where multi-party computation shines by eliminating these different risk factors, which is a technology that we are made use of. 
Would you like to share with us some of your thoughts on the recent FTX incident and how we can prevent similar cases in the future? Sure. I think the recent FTX blow up is really a reflection of how centralized entities would go down without strong regulations. And there's a reason for strong regulations in the financial industry, because before those regulations came in, exactly the same thing happened many years ago. The stock crash and the insider trading, and that's exactly what is happening with all these centralized exchanges. They just go all in and they place big bets, hoping that they would come out as the winner. Because at the end of the day, nobody's going to point fingers at them, even for investors who have invested in them, Sequoia and all these other big names who have done due diligence. They can hide it so well from the top-notch investors who have done so much due diligence before. So this highlights the risk of fraud over leverage for any centralized institutions that are not transparent. And that's the antithesis of blockchain, which is transparency and decentralization. So CFI and like all these centralized exchanges, they shouldn't exist in the first place. In some sense, they exist because it's a slow path towards decentralization. People do want to trade and centralized exchanges does provide better user experience at the beginning. But ultimately, centralized exchanges can't really be trusted, no matter how big they are, like FTX was big enough, right? Gemini, all these uh, Genesis trading, big names. But ultimately, when something happened, everyone is just going to go down. To quote Warren Buffett, you will know who is swimming naked only when the tide goes down. So how can we prevent similar cases in the future? I think we should promote more DeFi, which include DEXs and other lending borrowing protocols. You have everything on chain and everyone can know exactly what is happening. And then you would have more tools built for average consumers to make sense of, okay, the position other people are taking. And this is a risk that I will take by, by taking on this particular position, by democratizing the access to financial data and the internals of some of the financial structure in a market, which is exactly what DeFi is doing. You would kill the barrier of entry. You would have more players going into the space and trying to come up with creative and innovative products that really work in the favor of consumers. With the recent incidents, blockchain regulation again becomes a very hot topic. Would you like to share with us some of your thoughts on industry regulation? Yeah, I think industry regulation, especially on the topic of blockchain and have been going on for quite a while. So I started at Berkeley back in 2016, 2017 as a freshman, like SEC used to come to our school and talk a lot about ICO being recognized as security or not. There's how we test and uh, several other tests, right, to, to see if it's security and if it's, it's a security, how should exchanges deal with it? Because back then, like Coinbase was not listing anything else other than Bitcoin and Ethereum. There was like just a few years ago, it was not too long ago. So time flies and now here we are and you have more players like Three Hours Capital and FTX, you know, Genesis trading and Celsius, et cetera. And they become more and more, like more consumers are starting to be involved. The impact that's felt by the whole industry or the consumers are starting to grow. It's not the same magnitude as we've seen before. Back then, like see had limited interest in regulating it because the industry was very small. Only a handful of people were doing something like this. But now you have more and more people going into the blockchain space. So I think that definitely calls for regulation. But exactly how are we going to regulate it is I think SEC is more coming in from whether it's a security or it's not a secured. And you also have the whatever commission for futures exchange or whatsoever, like that's on anything that's financial derivatives. Like for example, you have highly leveraged trading through the means of perpetual futures, 
So that's going to be regulated just as any other derivatives are going to be regulated by the U.S. government. And you also have Bank Secrecy Act and anti-money laundering. So that's going to be something like more applicable to USDC and fiat on-ramp and off-ramp, where people are going to say, hey, if it's sending money on the blockchain, is it going to be subject to AML tests on both ends? Because in some countries, you do have to know exactly who sent it, exactly who received it. So those are the things that would probably come into play around the world. For DeFi users, can you share some daily tips on how to increase security? I think one thing is definitely understand exactly what you're signing and don't get lazy and do not really see exactly what MetaMask is having on there when you when they ask you to sign a contract. It's like an alphanumeric string. Let's say if you go to Uniswap, you want to buy some stuff, you click buy and then there is a thing you have to sign. It's an alphanumeric string of values. You really want to be able to understand exactly what you're signing. It could be that I'm transferring more money away from you. You just don't know. So just to understand exactly what you're consenting to by signing this alphanumeric value is very important. And this is where MPC help can be very helpful because we decode all the messages. You don't sign the alphanumeric string of values. We help you understand exactly what contract you're interacting with and what parameters you're passing. And by extension, the action you're allowing the contract or this particular transaction to perform on your behalf. I think that's the single most important thing because if you get that right, DNS hijacking doesn't matter because you can find out just by looking at the contract interaction you have been the co-founder of Inky Labs Inc., Loop Chat, and MetaLoop. How does your previous entrepreneurship journey reshape your decision-making process? Would you like to share some experience or thoughts with fellow entrepreneurs in blockchain? I think this is also very commonly asked questions. I think entrepreneurs is, it's hard to be an entrepreneur because you need to learn and there's no way to learn it from the textbook. And I give a simple analogy for this is that if you study math, just like you're listening to the lecture, this is so easy. But when you actually walk into the math exams, it feels like this is a completely different thing than what I've learned. So you do practice this homework, you do your homework, it takes time to understand and assimilate the knowledge that people have taught in lectures and really apply to practice. So doing questions is really the way for people to learn. And then they score well exams, right? Not just by listening to the lectures. Moving to the entrepreneurial case, you have lectures, but there's no homework for you. You can't really do homework by doing a startup. There's no such equivalence in entrepreneurship. You really just have to do things on and fail, just like you didn't know how to do some questions, you get the answer and then, oh, you learn from it. So I would encourage people who are aspiring entrepreneurs to start early. You can do small things like, like maybe selling a few items you bought with wholesale prices to your friends and et cetera, and you start to pick up things slowly and you start to build the instincts. So I think being able to practice entrepreneurship is very important and it's very hard to be successful if you do it the first time, just because you lack a lot of experience and experience have to be acquired through training and practice. Another way is to join an early stage startup and try to help the founder as much as you can to the best of your ability, because that's the most valuable lesson and help you with the long-term entrepreneurship journey. And the second point is that you have to be true to yourself and confident at the same time. So you have to listen to other people's advice and not listen at the same time. So it's really hard to make a decision and you have to train yourself with decision-making. People would say lots of things. Some would turn out to be correct, but many would turn out to be false. So you don't want to listen to everyone. You have to make up your own mind. And how do you make up your own mind and build the conviction is very important. You don't want to just stick to whatever you think is going to be true. And that's a mistake that I've made in the past. 
and I see other entrepreneurs make in the past. You don't want to just stick to your own personal belief without taking in and really understanding what other people are saying. And when you have a belief, right, you tend to dismiss what other people are saying by evaluating what they're trying to say on the surface level with your conviction, which is much more robust because we've been building it for some time. So I think in those times, it's really important to understand why people said whatever they were saying, not just what they were saying, because they might not even be true to some extent, but try to understand why they're saying what they're trying to say, right? And analyze and bring those back to the decision-making process to see, hey, okay, some people are worrying about this. Why am I not worried about it? And does this change my conviction? Because your conviction builds up from the bottom layer and then it slowly builds up layer by layer, and which leads to the ultimate decision-making process. And you have to examine whatever you have against what other people with a true-to-yourself attitude and see if it makes sense. And is there anything you have to change or you can put it on hold, but bear that in mind. Thank you, you, Jason. That's very insightful. What role do you believe Web3 initiatives or blockchain technology can play in addressing sustainability issues? Yeah, I think sustainability is a great question. And it's as a society, we should really look at it. There's a global warming and there's a lot of trash piling up. And when you look at global wealth gap between developing countries and developed countries, and also just between the different income groups in a developed country itself, there are huge gaps, right? And how do we address the sustainability issues in the longer term is key to human survival. So I think where blockchain can help is to bring more transparency to the process. For example, if you're dispersing aid using blockchain, everyone is able to see exactly what is going on and how much people are receiving. And then you would have more information made available to more people for scrutiny. You you can encourage public discourse to see how can we better distribute the funds such that it's a better allocation, people get better total welfare. So I think bringing more transparency would definitely be how blockchain could help with the system sustainability issue. Anything else you would like to share with our audience? I think Web3 is an interesting worlds and it's developing rapidly. There are lots of things that might not look nice. For example, the FTX blow up and all these hypes and then this crash and et cetera, which look very similar to when the stock market just started. So I think don't lose confidence, but really look at the technology, the financial markets of it matters, but it doesn't matter as much as the underlying technology. Ultimately, I think the whole Web3 movement is really to democratize finance, to strike down barriers that were built by regulation. But regulation had to be there because there's no other way to enforce transparency. There's no other way to enforce accountability. But with blockchain, there is a way. Think of blockchain technology in the enterprise use case to facilitate the information flow between financial institutions doing trade finance, right? You can get your trade finance today instead of three months, which typically they have to have banks calling each other at different countries reduced to say a week or two to three days, right? Ultimately, and all these processes can be automated, which ultimately would increase the efficiency of our economy and which would lead to a capacity expansion in the economics theory. And that's going to lower the prices, bring more goods, free more human time and labor so that they can invest their time into more useful and more meaningful things to create a more diverse economy, range of goods and leading to a more vibrant economy. So I think that's what the promise of blockchain is and don't lose faith in blockchain. Thank you, Jason. That's great. Thank you so much for joining this episode of Sustainable Non-Fungible Talk. This show is brought to you by SustainerDAO, 
a decentralized protocol that promotes social progress, environmental balance, and economic growth with blockchain technology. I'm your host, Clarice Chiu. And I'm your host, Ling Ling. If you like the content, subscribe and give us a follow on Twitter at SustainAdal. We also have premium content, including blockchain research, member-exclusive events, and more with NFT Pass access. For more information, please visit our website, diesel.org.